tapes, the 174th episode of Monster Kid Radio, the second episode in 2015's Women in Horror Month. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show that was kicked off with the song Morgana from the band The Phantom Four. You can find out more about them over at thephantom4.com. This song comes from their album, Morgana. It appears on this podcast with their permission. Welcome to the show where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And as I said at the top of the show, it is Women in Horror Month. And here at Monster Kid Radio, we are honoring the women in front of and behind the camera of some of our favorite classic monster and science fiction films. Now, in the last episode of Monster Kid Radio, I was joined by Tracy Morris from Disney, Indiana. She's been on the show quite a bit in the past. I love having her on. I'm looking forward to having her on the show quite a bit in the future. But we talked about the movie Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which has an iconic movie poster and while the movie had some very interesting things in it it wasn't necessarily one that struck tracy and i as being well exciting to watch and i don't want to sound too down on the film but you know we both remembered it being a lot better than it ended up being and we got some feedback from chris franklin from the supermates podcast hey derek it was nice to hear tracy stop by big fan of disney indiana me too. <laughs> Attack of the 50-Foot Woman is actually a film I've seen. You've piqued my interest on many films here on MKR, and usually they are known to me, but I've never watched them. I actually DVR'd this one off TCM a while back and watched it sometime late last year. I came to pretty much the same conclusions as you and Tracy did. The small town angle really doesn't work when you consider Harry and Honey are all over each other in public. Not exactly going to help with that alibi, Harry. Now, I didn't catch the allusions to the, um, quote-unquote unwomanly act in regards to Nancy's transformation. I seem to remember thinking he scratched her while grabbing at her, and that was what started the change. But your theory adds a whole other subtext to the issues with feminism this film seems to have. If this was what they were getting at, this was pretty heavy stuff for a 1958 sci-fi film. Looking forward to more with Tracy next time, Chris. Yeah, there's some really interesting things happening here, and I'm glad Tracy brought it up for us to talk about here on the show. It was actually the TCM airing of the movie that I watched. I DVR'd it when it aired was like last month or it's been a little while actually. So it's been sitting on my DVR waiting for this month and yeah, it was a really good print or transfer, excuse me. But again, the movie itself does have some short comings. No pun intended or is that a, an anti pun? Anyway, Tracy and I wanted to talk about something that was a little bit more. Oh yeah. It was as good as I remember it. So this time around, we're talking about a movie called, I don't know if you've looked at the cover art for this episode of Monster Kid Radio. You know it is It Conquered the World from 1956 from director Roger Corman. Why is this relevant in Women in Horror Month? Well, we're going to get to that. Before that, though, why don't I tell you about our website? Bet you thought I forgot. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. From here, you can find links to everything that we've got going on here. Our Amazon store where you can pick up books and movies and CDs and things that we've talked about here on the show in the past. If you buy it through the Amazon store, it doesn't cost you anything extra, but Amazon does float a penny or two our way. So you can support us that way. You can also support us by joining our Patreon campaign and becoming a patron of Monster Kid Radio. I promise we are, we are working the reward levels. It's happening. I promise. We also have links to every song that's appeared here 
on the show, every piece of music that we play on Monster Kid Radio, we get permission to play. So if you enjoy what you hear and you end up buying the music directly from the band by going through our songs button, well, let them know that you heard about it on Monster Kid Radio. You can also find links to various podcasts and such that I've been a guest on in the past, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, there's a link to Disney Indiana over there. There's also a link to our Facebook group where conversations are happening between episodes with listeners. And you know, it's really cool. Nicholas Hatcher just posted a link to a movie called Tales of the Masked Men. This is a documentary from 2012 talking about, well, Mexican wrestling and the tradition of mass Mexican wrestlers. Why is that relevant to Monster Kid Radio? Well, next month, it looks like that for at least one week, we're going to be talking about Mexican wrestler monster movies because I just can't get enough of Santo, Blue Demon, Mil Mascaris, and all the rest. So go check that out. Bone up a little bit and come back here in March with your mask on for that. But don't skip ahead. I mean, we've got some great stuff happening this month, like this conversation with Tracy Morris about A Conquer the World right after this. From writing less than a hundred eyes have seen comes the experience of the she-creatures. Screen Life by Chester Morris, Marla English, Kathy Downs, Lance Fuller, Tom Conway, Frida Innescourt, and Ron Randall. It's an adventure into the occult, such as few people have known, and only those who see it can believe. You're not going for that supernatural hokum of his. I don't really know what I'm going for. I know he's a killer. Now you are traveling back through time and space. Father... Father back. Back. Under his spell, she was both herself and another being. The she-creature seeking life sustenance from the stolen heartbeats of others. She was a woman born to be loved. And two men wanted her. One a man whose powerful mad mind controlled her every reflex... Except her love. No! The other, willing to fight any odds for her love. You've been living in shadows. I want to bring you back to life. Society dances to hide the hysterical terror caused by their sudden intimacy with death. Forever closer comes the she-creature. You'll never forget the I told them to bring me one, and I'd believe it. Oh, I can't say I blame you, Sheriff. But Flynn's still missing. Deep into caverns whose very air is putrefied by the stench of death. <coughs> they search ceaselessly for a missing man, or possibly a giant spider no one really believes exists. Except the high school teacher who knows his science and his students. There will be more giant spiders coming into the world. They may even be hatching from their eggs in some remote spot right now. Do you realize how easy it would be for them to overcome us humans? A horrifying spectacle. Its existence shocks and fascinates the world of science. Its gigantic claws capable of crushing a man. 
before tearing a woman apart as if she were a fly. But nothing sends the cats like the presence of -of out-of-this-world horror. A heart-stopping experience that defies man's imagination. That shrinks every woman's skin with the tension of terrifying withdrawal as if a thousand spiders were taking possession of her body. You'll never believe it until you see it. You'll never forget the touch of the spider. We wanted to talk about another movie as well, especially after having watched this one. You contacted me and said, I I remember this being a lot different. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about this movie, too. And it's like, okay, let's do it. Why not? Let's make it happen. Now, the other movie that we're going to talk about is another film with a pretty strong female presence. Uh, it's not as obviously woman in horror related at first blush. And it's the movie It Conquered the World from 1956. What's this all about? What's everybody running from? It's the end of everything. What do you mean? I'm not arguing theory, General. I'm here to ask you, to beg you, to save your own world. It, it, the most fascinating mastermind man can conceive. A monster that can control all sources of the Earth's power. Able to pull man-made spaceships from their orbits. Making of those it chooses slaves. Of this woman, a willing handmaiden. Of the chief of police, a cold-blooded killer. Well, I've known you for five years. You just killed a man in cold blood. Why? I'll have to place you under protective custody. Peter Graves, the scientist who fought it. Beverly Garland, who believed her love stronger than it. Lee Van Cleef, whose brilliant mind was captured by it. Are you really ready to stop loving me? I'll need you even when no emotion exists. For a few dollars, you can you can hire a woman who'll fit all your fetishes. To match your requirements perfectly. Then if you ever get tired of it, you can always run down to the employment agency for another. You'll know terror to freeze your blood. You'll feel the heart-stopping strength of the most fearful monster ever known. You think you're going to make a slave of the world? I'll see you in hell first. It conquered the world. With Lee Van Cleef. I mean, <laughs> when would you ever see Lee Van Cleef in a low-budget monster movie directed by Roger Corman? Apparently here. Yeah, this is it, man. <laughs> this is a treat just for that. It's also got Peter Graves' Mission Impossible himself mm-hmm. is in the film. But it's Women in Horror Month, so we got to talk about Beverly Garland. Yes, Beverly Garland plays the wife of Lee Van Cleef, who is kind of the pretty much the main character. Mm-hmm. He's a scientist who has kind of a shadowy past in some ways. It seems like he's continually made these predictions that uh, very negative predictions that haven't really come true. So he's kind of re- it seems like he's almost in retirement. And he's been working on his own special projects. 
Yeah. One of which involves all of this interesting electronic equipment in an alcove in their living room. Yeah. And that has allowed him to make contact with another creature, creature from another world. And he invites his friend and colleague, Peter Graves, character, Dr. Paul Nelson, over to kind of share that information. Well, actually, it's kind of a dinner party. So his wife comes along, played by Sally Fraser. So it's Joan Nelson and Dr. Paul Nelson. Lee Van Cleef plays Dr. Tom Anderson, and Beverly Garland is his wife, Claire Anderson. So they're having a little dinner party, mm-hmm. and that's when um, Van Cleef says, I've got something to show you. And Claire, his wife, is already kind of like, I don't know if that's such a good idea right now, dear, because she's been watching all of this and kind of seeing how obsessed he's gotten over this radio transmitter. So he shows it off and, and turns it on and... You hear kind of this humming sound, this modulated humming sound, and Mm -hmm. and apparently Dr. Anderson can understand it. He hears it as a voice, and he has been communicating. And there's this other creature from Venus who's going to be coming to Earth to give us all these wonderful things and make our lives so much better. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, we think. He thinks. He thinks, yes. Yeah, Dr. Tom has been trying to convince the, is it, I guess it's a military pro, well, the military's involved. Mm-hmm. Do not launch this satellite. We're back to satellites again. You know, we don't put the satellite up there. You got to stop the project. You know, we cannot be reaching outside of our boundaries. We're mm-hmm. getting too big for our britches, that sort of thing. And like he said, he's got this, this setup in this little alcove behind a curtain. How he got it, how it works, I have no idea. They never really get into the science of it or where it came from. Although, I suppose Dr. Tom is a multi-degreed college professional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> professor. He's a scientist. Yeah, he's a scientist, and he's got tons of degrees. So maybe pulled a few strings. Anyway, he's talking to this thing out here. Now, Dr. Nelson can't hear it. And we never hear any voices. It's always just kind of this modulated hum. But Dr. Tom can hear it, and he starts to roll out the red carpet. <laughs> Paul Nelson, Peter Graves' character, is, as you mentioned, involved in this military operation to send up the satellite. So we've got these scenes set in the military base with uh, the scientists all standing around in their in their lab coats, and they're tracking the satellite after they've launched it. And all seems to be going well until it disappears. Yeah. And then it comes back, and they decide to bring it down to figure out what's going on. Well, that's not a good idea. No, because Dr. Tom Anderson's pal has decided to hitch a ride on the satellite. Yep. And that's how the creature makes it to Earth. The creature. The creature. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the creature is probably what this film is unfortunately best known for. It's iconic, for better or worse. It looks... Well, it, we'll it, get to it. It's we'll unique. Get, yeah, it is unique. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to it. I think it's kind of interesting that Dr. Anderson started off saying, don't launch the satellite, don't, don't, don't. But then all of a sudden he's like all hunky-dory with it when he realizes his pal from Venus is going to hitch a ride on it. That seemed like a little bit of a a switcheroo there. It's like, wait a minute, you don't want to get the notice of these other beings out there, but now you're in touch with one of those beings and you're okay with it coming on down. That's a good point. Now I kind of want to go back and watch those scenes again and see where exactly he kind of changed his viewpoint. Yeah. 
But all the while, his wife, Claire, has been kind of watching him. She's, she's still very supportive of him. I don't think she ever lets on. If she thinks he's gone over the, you know, over the, around the bend, she still recognizes him as a brilliant mind, but she's becoming concerned about his obsessiveness with this creature from Venus and the communications. Yeah. For a good reason. For a very good reason. For a very good reason. I think, I mean, I was immediately drawn to Beverly Garland in this film. First of all, Beverly Garland is awesome. We talked about her in The Alligator People when I had Tom Bigler on the show uh, last year. I think it was at some point last year we talked about that. I think she's great. I love her as an actress. She's fantastic. And I feel like her journey in this movie is what makes this a movie to talk about during Women in Horror Month. You know, she's concerned about her husband because he's obsessed. What he's obsessed Mm -hmm. about, it doesn't matter. She's just concerned that he's become so focus on this one thing now she does go on a journey you know as you said with good reason she's concerned because Mm -hmm. she does eventually not just get concerned that her husband is obsessed about something but now what it is that he's obsessed about well that's terrifying yes you know she does make that transition and it's amazing i think she's fantastic in this i definitely agree she's the voice of reason even more so than peter graves i think Peter Graves spends a lot of time monologuing, but I think uh, Beverly Garland is the one that is the emotional Mm -hmm. truth to the film. As we said, there's the satellite that was set up, disappeared for a while, came back on the sensors, and Dr. Nelson's team decides they need to bring it down to figure out what happened to it. And there's the hitchhiker. Yeah. So this is the creature, which I don't think it ever gets a name in this film. Now, there is a remake of the film in which it gets called Zontar. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it gets brought down. We have a a brief scene of it scuttling away from, I guess the satellite actually kind of crash lands, and it scuttles away, and we go back to... Dr. Anderson, and he's explaining to his wife and to, I don't remember if he explains right away to to Peter Graves, to Dr. Paul Nelson, what's going on. But basically, the creature wants to, as you might guess from the title, conquer the Earth. Right. (laughs) And is going to do so via mind control devices. So it wants to bring peace to the world by eliminating emotions. Now, its mind control devices are something it creates in and of itself, but it can, it can only create so many at once. It's, I think it starts out with eight, and it, it has certain targets. So it's going to target the general at the military installation and his wife, the mayor of the local community, and the mayor's wife. It recognizes Paul Nelson as a threat, so it's going after Paul and Paul's wife. And I don't remember who the fourth set is for. Was it the scientists? Yeah, it may, it may have been some of the other top scientists at the military installation. These mind control devices, by more biological than anything else, they look kind of like flying bat creatures. And they implant basically antennas in the back of your neck and that's how the main creature controls you right so it gets to oh the police officer in town ah there you go that's that's the other person so it it makes connection with the police officer first i think and the general 
And even though the wives get mentioned, we don't never find out if the police officer's wife or the general's wife ever actually get under mind control. So the police officer says we've got to evacuate the town. The general, he puts the the military base under lockdown. And while all this is happening, the main creature has also de-energized the area. Now, we don't know. We never really find out if it's like the entire world or if it's just the immediate vicinity of the military installation or what. Vehicles stop working. Even watches are affected. So I don't know if EMPs were something that was generally known of at the time or if this was just a convenient plot device developed by uh, the scriptwriter and Corman to basically prevent any kind of communication, any kind of transportation other than by foot or by bicycle. And it's very selective. Well, I wouldn't say very selective. I mean, it is right. selective because everybody but Anderson's equipment is what's turned off. I mean, Anderson's car still works. Right. Well, once you're under the creature's mind control, then your vehicle can work. You have electricity. Right. Yeah, basically, it starts granting those back to you once it knows it's got you under control. Right. So the Nelsons were actually on their way back up to see the Andersons during this de-energizing process. So they end up walking the rest of the way out to their remote, their house out in the country. It's interesting to kind of compare and contrast the two scientists' wives. We've already talked about how Beverly's character, Claire Anderson, she's very supportive of her husband. She also seems to have a pretty general idea of what's going on. She's not a brilliant scientist, but she seems to have a good grasp. Whereas Sally Fraser, as Mrs. Nelson, she kind of is the typical, oh, I don't know what all you boys are talking about, but I hope your space medicine can at least give me a way to get rid of this headache. (laughs) So she seems much more the typical 50s wife. Now, she was not the original person cast for this film. Peggy Castle was originally cast. Sally Fraser came in. Uh, she knew Roger Corman did us a favor. She was five months pregnant. Wow. During her scene. Well, I mean, <laughs> but only during her scene. So she was five months <laughs> pregnant uh, during oh. the, the film. Now, the movie was only shot over the course of a few days. so Right. And, and she's not a lead character, so you don't have to hide too much. But mm-hmm. I, I had no idea. I had no idea either. I sure could use some space aspirin. So we have Dr. Nelson trying to figure out what's going on between the, the de-energizing and he encounters the police officer who's you know trying to get everybody out of town and he ends up just shooting someone who refuses to leave. And, you know, Paul's saying, I, I, I've known you for 20 years. I can't believe you do that. Does he discover the mind control at that point or not quite? So he grabs a bicycle. And decides to bicycle back up to see the Andersons again. I think it's while he's making that second trip that he starts being attacked by his mind control creature. Or it makes a couple passes at him, yeah. but it, it isn't able to get to him. So he goes up, has another conversation with Anderson, Lee Van Cleef's character. Basically, he's kind of whitewashing everything. He's not ready to bring Peter Graves into the whole conspiracy yet right because he's not under control under the mind control so we've got again some good scenes between beverly garland and lee van cleave because she's aware of what's going on he's explained the whole procedure to her now he's not expecting that she will need this control because she's his wife and she's Mm going to go along with him so he makes that assumption which is not 
the best assumption to make. No. She's got a mind of her own. She does. She does not come to the same conclusions about the uh, Venusian creature being here to do us good as uh, her husband does. I, again, you know, I said it before, I'll say it again. I, I love Beverly Garland in this. And when she's confronting her husband in the film, mm-hmm. I mean, she's great. I mean, she's holding her own against Lee Van freaking Cleef. Yes. I, I can't imagine how hard that would be. In my mind, she's kind of the hero of the film. Really? Well, she ends up at least causing the creature's demise inadvertently. Yeah. Or not in, not inadvertently, but she not directly. She's arguing with her husband. She's the one that tries to make him see the light. Yeah, she eventually is the first one who directly attacks the creature. That's true. Yeah, after the first one to see that. After kind of sweet-talking the uh, location <laughs> out of her husband, using her feminine wiles. Well, she was very good at it. Mm-hmm. I just want you to answer a couple questions, and then, then I'll, I'll make up my mind about whether this is really the best thing for us to do. It's really good. She get like sweet talking, uh, playing her husband, getting the information. Cause I think she made the decision that, you know, her husband, he can't be reasoned with at this point. He's set on a course, mm-hmm. set on a path. It's not till the end that he finally comes around, but at that point it's spoiler too late for us, <laughs> for the wife. So mm-hmm. another scene I really liked was when Nelson, Peter Graves, goes back to his house after his first attempt to kind of mm. figure out everything that's going on. You know, he told his wife, stay in, close the windows, you know, keep everything safe. Well, she didn't listen to that whole close the windows thing real well. Yeah. He doesn't notice, but we as the list, as the watchers, I think, or the viewers of the film are supposed to notice that there's lights on in her house. Yep. You know, she's off taking a shower and... He says, well, how are you able to take a shower? Because even the water flow was affected. Oh, I just took a bucket and, and filled up the, the reservoir or something. Right. So he even kind of misses the fact that the lights are on. Mm-hmm. But then she says, oh, and I've got a little surprise for you. Oh, and he's, oh what's that? I'm five and months she- pregnant. Oh, right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so she walks out into the room. She's got her hands behind her back and just the expression on her face. You, you know, as she brings out one of the mind control flying bat creatures is just a beautiful piece of acting. Yeah. This, I'm going to set you free, my dear. You join us the whole time. <laughs> exactly right. So, yeah, he manages to take out the mind control device, which I got the impression that they were programmed for each person. They do throw that out there a couple of times, don't they? Yeah. You know. They mention that and also that the the main it, the main Venusian creature can't create more of these. It takes a week to make more of them. <laughs> so to kind of tilt to the side and let a couple <laughs> fall out, yeah. Yeah, give birth to them, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. So Paul Nelson is is the loose cannon. He's not under the mind control. So mm-hmm. he's he's a danger seen as a danger and Lee Van Cleef, Dr. Tom Anderson has to make the decision. He has to kill him. Yep. He knows too much. There's some interesting back and forth between them and then as as we mentioned earlier, Beverly Garland's character Claire Anderson, you know, she takes it upon herself to destroy the creature. And she takes her husband's rifle and goes out after it. Now, we had seen a brief glimpse of the creature earlier in the film 
kind of behind some some brush and we see it moving. It's making its way from the crash site to the cave. Right. So we don't really get a good look at it until Beverly goes in the cave after it. I think it's fairly well portrayed as long as it's in the dark. I actually love the creature design or I love the reasoning behind it. Because at the time, it was assumed Venus had a high gravity, and it, they, it was known to have a very thick atmosphere, so it makes sense that a creature would have to be built low to the ground. It would have to have a low center of gravity. Right. It would be kind of squat. Yeah, I even found a, a great interview with Paul Blaisdell, the creature's designer, where he talks about conversing with the, uh, the script writer, and how it actually, it's not even really an animal. It's a sentient fungus, mushroom type thing, which again goes a long way towards explaining it being a squat character. Right. If it's a vegetable, if it's a fungus, it doesn't really have much in the way of locomotion. So it can't move very quickly, but that's why it created these separate mind control elements. In fact, Paul Blaisdell calls them the flying fingers. So that's how the creature perceives the world through these separate elements, which I thought was, again, I I love the thinking behind it. Yeah. What they ended up doing with it, I think, gives it its, its reputation. It was never meant to be out in full sunlight. It was all meant to be filmed in the shadows of the cave. And I think it looks effective there. And also, the two claws were supposed to be a lot mobile. It was at, you were actually supposed to be able to open and close the claws. It was designed that way. But the first day on set, it was sitting off to one side, and a couple of grips ran a cart over one of the extended arms and broke oh, no. the wiring inside. That's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that is unfortunate. So we have the confrontation. Beverly goes after it, says she's going to kill it. She tries. Apparently, gunfire doesn't do a whole lot of good against it, and it uh, it attacks her. And fortunately, her screams attract the attention of the army patrol who was sent out in the woods. That's right. We didn't talk about these guys. No, we didn't, but we, we need to. It's Roger Corman, so you know Dick Miller's somewhere. And his, I forget who his partner was. There was the, the oh, Mexican, yeah, the extremely oh. stereotypical Mexican character. Played by Jonathan Hayes. Yeah, who Corporal is, Manuel Ortiz. Who's another Roger Corman stalwart, you know, Monster from the Ocean Floor, Swamp Women, Day of the World. And I mean, he's done a lot of these types of movies. But yeah, he's really <laughs> over the top in this one. And Dick Miller calls him stupid quite a bit. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, he played Seymour in the original Little Shop of Horrors. Really? Yeah. I'll have to go back and watch that now. Darn. <laughs> so, but he ends up actually coming to the rescue. You know, they yeah. hear the screams. He goes, he's the first one, or the second one after Beverly, to see the creature. And he tries firing at it a couple times. He leaves, calls the rest of the group in. Eventually, with the help of... Dr. Anderson defeat the creature. At what cost? At what cost? <laughs> At the cost of having the creature brought out into the sunlight where yeah. its failings are brought to light, shall we say? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, if it had been kept in the cave, quite, I think it would work a lot better in shadow. But yeah, having seen it out in the daylight, 
it does look kind of cartoonish. Yeah, and Blaisdell said it was not designed to move on its own. He said it had little casters on the bottom <laughs> so you could move it, get it placed correctly for the shot. But it was never supposed to walk and move on its own. I'd heard that you can actually see the casters in one scene. I didn't see them this time around. but Yeah, I, I didn't notice. And the way it dies, kind of flapping over on its side, that was something that Corman insisted on. Well, we ha- how are we going to know it's dead? It has to lay down and die. <laughs> and Blaisdell's like, it's not designed to do that. You didn't tell me it had to move yeah. that way. So, yeah, it ends up... Very awkward. I don't think we even see it actually flopping on its head. Like there's a shot and then camera moves away. It comes back and it's laying on its side. Yeah. But yeah, it it looks awkward to say the least in that position. It really does. There's a couple things that look kind of awkward with it when it has to interact with people, Mm -hmm. the way the claws kind of move around and all that. It just, it's unfortunate because it does kind of take you out of the movie a little bit more so than Peter Graves is monologuing. (laughs) <laughs> which he does a lot of. Yeah. But, I mean, the movie was shot in five days, and there's a lot of material to get through, so mm-hmm. do what you got to do, I guess. The two women in the film, uh, again, Sally Frazier, Beverly Garland, loved them both. Uh, Sally Frazier had done quite a bit of films like this, uh, you know, to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about to begin with. She was in War of the Colossal Beast. Okay. So she's done a big person movie, too. <laughs> 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 Makes it sound like she got to sit at the big table at Thanksgiving. She did a big person movie. No, she did like it, uh, Earth vs. a Spider, Giant from the Unknown, lots of television, that sort of thing. But when I think about the women in this film, I'm always going to gravitate toward Beverly Garland. And there were a couple of other female characters, one of the scientist characters. Yeah. I think her name was Ellen. You know, she was there and she was treated as an equal. She wasn't just the, oh, go get his coffee girl. Well, she. There, there was the one scene towards there the end. There was one her. Yeah. Well, that was after the other men were already mind controlled. Oh, so okay. So let's be fair. That was the creature saying, "Go get coffee." I think at one point one of them said, "I don't want coffee." Well, I do because I'm thirsty. So I guess she does kind of own it a little bit. So. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll give her that. We'll give her that. Unfortunately, she didn't make it to the end of the film. No, no, because when she opens up for the coffee stuff, she finds the, the flying fingers. Yes. Oh, and there's a great picture of one of the flying fingers in the, uh, it came from Bob's basement. Mm-hmm. It even has like this set of fake fangs glued in on the face. Oh, wow. Protrusions, the little probe things, they have fingernails. Huh. There's also a picture of the creature, which is nicknamed Beulah. Cosmic Carrot is another thing I've heard it called, but the Blaisdell called it Beulah, and it's actually kind of a beet red color, which is interesting. The, the movie's in black and white, so it's all shades of gray, but I think it, it is this kind of bright. I've seen pictures of it in color, and it's this bright, bright, vibrant. But I, I don't know if it translates very well to being otherworldly on film, on black and white film, but it does look cool in color, I think. Yeah, me too. I would like to see a remake of this movie. Really? Because I think the story is solid. If you can get actors the quality of Van Cleef and Garland and even Graves, I think it would go over well. It would probably have to be more of an indie type film, but I would like to see it with better special effects. And I think it would be an interest. You could make some interesting modern comparisons. You could put an interesting modern twist on it. Sure. It only wants to bring peace to our troubled world by eliminating all emotions. Again, how much of the current strife 
you know, in our current world is caused by emotions. Could be interesting, uh, depending on how they did it, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier that it was remade once uh, for television by Larry Buchanan was the man behind that. Mm-hmm. Zondar, the thing for me, and it's starring John Agar. Ah, I have not seen it. Well, most of Larry Buchanan's remakes for TV, he remade a handful of uh, AIP's movies for television. Mm-hmm. And they have a charm, but they also have severe budget limitations as well. Even more so than the original? Uh, you know, it's just, it's... 60s TV movie quality. I don't mm-hmm. know how best to describe it. Yeah. But, yeah, I can see that. There's some interesting themes you can kind of play up with here, I suppose, with the remake. I mean, there's a, there's a lot happening in this movie. For a movie that was shot, it's a low-budget cheapie. It's Roger Corman. You know, he understood. I think we all know he understood more than most, you know, the business side of just putting product on the screen in the drive-ins, that sort of thing. And this film does definitely come from that school of thought. But there are some really interesting things happening here. Some performances that I don't know if you'd really associate with a low-budget Corman cheapie. Yeah. I'm curious to see some other scripts written by... Lou Russoff is the one who's credited, but some things that I was reading, like the Paul Blaisdell book, it sounds like Griffith pretty much... Charles B. Griffith kind of rewrote the script. Oh, yeah? To a large extent. So I'm, I'm curious to see... Maybe try to track down something else that they were involved in and see if, if that same quality of work is there or some of the same themes are used mm. in some of their other work. Well, Rusoff did quite a bit of work for AIP as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of, of films. Uh, he did the Beach Party film, The Hot Rod Gang, which is kind of fun. And The She-Creature, speaking of women in horror, you know, another okay. movie with a titular monster that is a mm-hmm. female this was actually released as a double feature with It Conquered the World upon its mm-hmm. initial release. So, And She-Creature was another Blaisdell mm-hmm. creation. Are you, are you overly familiar with Paul Blaisdell? No, but I'd like to be. If it wasn't for Paul Blaisdell, I'd, I'd like to believe, or I, I, I do believe, that some of these Roger Corman films and AIP films would not have the legs that they have today. Oh. He did so much with so little. Mm-hmm. The monster design, the She-Creature, which he actually brought out a second time. When he did the Ghost of Dragstrip, uh, excuse me, the Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, which was a follow-up to the Hot Rod Gang movie, he actually puts on the costume himself and appears in the film in a cameo. So Paul Blaisdell and Bob Burns were really, really good friends. You've got that it came from Bob's basement book. Yeah. So I'm sure he's mentioned quite a bit in there. Yes, he is. Yeah. But yeah, Paul Blaisdell. We should do a Paul Blaisdell special here on the show at some point. I'd be in for that. Right on. In fact, I'm looking at. I may have try to track down this again I, I got it through google books the paul blaisdell monster maker there you go biography add that to my wish list <laughs> of the two movies that we watched to talk about this week i like this one better i agree this one i think has some rewatchability to it well if you've only seen it through mystery science theater 3000 do yourself a favor and watch the regular version it really has some solid acting in it. It has some wonderful character interaction. Again, Beverly Garland is one of my new favorite women from this time period, I think. (laughs) I'm probably going to make Derek bad, but I like her better than Julie Adams' character. You know what? She and Julie Adams actually shared the same birthday, so it's all right. All right. (laughs) But Julie's still cuter, huh? You know, I, I like Julie Adams, uh, and I'm just going to say that. 
Yep. I mean, people know that. But Beverly Garland, I know, has quite the following. I know Tom Bigler. I mentioned him earlier. Uh, really likes Beverly Garland, and, and I can see why. I mean, she's fantastic as an actress. She's charismatic, and you you can't help but be drawn to whatever she's doing and whatever she's in. I need to track down some more of her work. Up to and including Christmas Vacation too. Cousin Eddie's Island Event. I'm just kidding. I've never seen that. That's one I probably don't need to track down. I guess I'll look and see what else is in the uh, MKR wheelhouse. You know, you mentioned Swamp Women, and there's Not of This Earth. Mm-hmm. through a list. Alligator People, you've already covered. I need to go back and re-listen have, to that episode now. Have you seen Alligator People? I have not. Oh, it's good. She did a lot of television back in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. too. So you, there's a lot of material out there. Uh, some of it's not monster related but that's okay. I mean, a lot of it's still really good. So There's a Disney connection. Uh-oh. Wonderful World of Disney. Yeah? She was a, a character, a Mrs. Barco, in six episodes. But it, I'll need to dig and find a little bit more about that. Okay. Yeah, of, of the two films, I would definitely recommend It Conquered the World over Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I agree. It is something I'm going to go back and rewatch. Uh, another link between the two films. I believe the film music in both films was composed by Ronald Stein, who is somebody that I really like. Uh, and he's also another Roger Corman regular. Mm-hmm. So they have kind of the same feel. In fact, I've got uh, an album. I believe it's just called Not of This Earth, the music of Ronald Stein, which does have a nice uh, collection of music from The Amazing the amazing 50-Foot Woman, The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I think I conquered the world's on there. Something's on there. And I think I have some of that in the Live 365 Monster Kid Radio station. So people want to hear that, just go tune in over there. If I don't have it in there now, I will by the time this episode goes out. How about that? <laughs> Works for me. Like I said, at the very beginning of all of this, it's easy to look at a lot of these movies because of the time they were made in. You know, we see the men. You know, they're the ones that are exploited. They're the ones that are, are yeah, they're exploited. Their images are on the, the movie posters. They're the, the ones, the characters that we think about. But I don't know if that's really the most fair because there are so many wonderful performances in the movies that we just talked about here by women that I think need to get a little bit more credit. Beverly Garland is amazing. Allison Hayes was great. Yvette Vickers is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think they really contributed a lot to the genre. I agree. I've been on the show before and we've talked about how very often if the woman in these types of films is a plot point or she's the subject of a love triangle and doesn't really get to be a character, you know, she doesn't get to move the plot along necessarily. These two films obviously much more the focus, or at least Attack the 50-Foot Woman, obviously the focus is on the female main character. And as we've said in It It Conquered the World, Beverly Garland is a pivotal character in that she counterpoints her husband's fanaticism, his his focus on, well, this character from Venus, he's going to save us all. He's going to make our, our lives so much better. And she's like, no, losing emotions you know, emotions are what make us human. She brings up that point even before Peter Graves does. It's fantastic. I mean, she's the heart in the relationship. Dr. Anderson's the brain. She's the heart. And without the heart, I mean, you have kind of a flat story here. I think you're right. She is the one that's ultimately responsible for giving us a finale. Mm-hmm. Thanks for recommending these two movies. I mean, it was fun to kind of revisit. Even though Attack of the 50-Foot Woman maybe left us a little flat, thank you for recommending them, especially I Conquered the World. So this was... A good chat. Good. good times. 
<laughs> Thanks for having me on, and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing your other episodes on Women of Horror coming up this month. Me too. <laughs> this is the first one we've recorded for the for February, so fingers crossed all the other episodes will be as good as this one. So, uh, And people can find Tracy on her home podcast with... Frequent Monster Kid Radio guest Scott Morris and my co-producer at 1951 Down Place can find her over at Disney Indiana at DisneyIndiana.com every other week. All sorts of great Disney goodness. Let's see, this is going out in February. I'm not sure what week in February, but what what are some February highlights you have planned? Interestingly enough, kind of not really tying in with Women of Horror, but we are having a female-focused episode at the beginning of the month where we're revisiting the No Princesses Club concept. This is something we talked about several years ago, where I invited a couple of other female podcasters on, and we highlighted some of our favorite non-royal Disney female characters. Since Disney seems to be all about the princesses, we wanted to give a little love to the other women of Disney that don't wear a crown. So we revisited again, and I had Cindy Franklin from the Supermates podcast on this time around. Nice. I believe, yep. And she, so she was able to bring some of the Marvel characters in with her comic book background. Nice. And Sarah from the Skywalking Through Neverland podcast, which is a Star Wars and Disney-themed fan podcast. So we had a really fun conversation and looking forward to sharing that with the listeners. So either keep an eye out or ear out for that or go back into the archives at DisneyIndiana.com and listen to that. Uh, Like I said, I don't know what week this is going out, so go check that out. You don't have any excuse not to. Tracy, we'll have to have you back on the show down the line. I I have been taking some notes, and uh, if we do some Paul Blaisdell stuff, we'll have you on for that for sure, as well as anything else we can think of. Sounds great. I always enjoy having a chance to watch some classic monster films and chat about them here on the show. Awesome. You're always welcome. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Big thanks to Tracy for joining Monster Kid Radio to talk about these two movies. It's always awesome to have her on the show. So, Tracy, thank you so much. Again, listeners, check her out, DisneyIndiana.com. And she mentioned the We're No Princesses Club. Well, remember the email that we got from Chris from the Supermates podcast? His wife, Cindy, joined her for that We're No Princesses Club episode of Disney Indiana, as well as Sarah from the Skywalking Through Neverland podcast. So go check that out. And again, let them know Monster Kid Radio sent you their way. Although they probably already know because Scott and Tracy, well, listen to the show. You know, I didn't go over our contact information at the top of the show. If you have any feedback for anything that we've talked about here on the show, either this episode or the previous 172 of them, email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or drop me a line by voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795. MKR. This contact information is in the show notes and is on our website as well. Now that voicemail line is Google. So it's a three minute limit. If you have more to say, we'll call back more than once or just send an MP3 or WAV file to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. That'll work. Now, next time on Monster Kid Radio, got a couple of different irons in the fire going. So not entirely sure what's happening next week on Monster Kid Radio, but it will still be part of Women in Horror Month, I promise. You're just going to have to come back for that. Stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net 
or iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is you download and listen to your podcast. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. Our original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Morgana. That belongs to The Phantom 4. It's on their album, Morgana. You can find out more about them over at ThePhantom4.com. Big thanks to them for letting us play their music on the show, and thank you for listening. Talk to everybody next week.